This is an NC Baptist resource. For more, visit ncbaptist.org. Welcome to the NC Baptist Podcast, the podcast designed to engage with ministry leaders around topics that will explore approaches and resources to help us be on mission together. It's because of your generosity that this resource is available. Learn more at ncbaptist.org slash give or contact us at communications at ncbaptist.org. Thanks for tuning in to the NC Baptist podcast today. I'm Kenny Lamb, Worship Ministry Strategist with North Carolina Baptist. This is the first part of a two-part series of a conversation via Zoom with Dr. David Manor, Executive Director of Church Ford, which is the new name for the Kansas-Nebraska Convention of Southern Baptist. David, I want you to know that you have been a great inspiration and friend to me for 13 years, and I am delighted to welcome you to our podcast today. Well, thank you, Kenny. It's good to be here with you, too. We have been friends for a long time and a valued colleague, and you're also an inspiration for me, man. Well, before becoming executive director, David had leadership in the worship ministries of their convention. He's well known for his writings on worship, whether on his blog, worshipevaluation.org, which is currently getting an upgrade, or in his excellent and highly recommended book, Better Sundays Begin on Monday, 52 Exercises for Evaluating Weekly Worship. If you follow the North Carolina Baptist Worship blog, and I hope that you do, renewingworshipnc.org, you're familiar with David's writing since he is a guest author uh, for many articles there. Honestly, I quote David Manor probably more than any other worship specialist on this planet, and he has been a great influence on my ministry. Before joining the Kansas-Nebraska Convention staff 23 years ago, David served churches for 20 years in Kansas, Arkansas, Texas, and Oklahoma, David is definitely not a Southern boy. He holds music and worship degrees from Oklahoma Baptist University, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and the Robert E. Weber Institute for Worship Studies. So as we think about church health, corporate worship almost always is a centerpiece of those discussions. Often leaders erroneously think they can just change the style of worship in their church and the church will flourish. There's so much more involved in all that. As we consider church health, I believe the health of a church's worship might be one good vital sign to give us insight to the overall health of the church. Often church leaders have a hard time distinguishing elements of the worship service that are essential versus those that are non-essential. Much of that came to light during the COVID season, and many churches are just now recovering from the craziness of that period of time. So David, let me ask you this. Over the last few years, Some of those previous worship and music elements we thought we could not live without, we actually did and still led quality worship. So how did we or do we determine what we should or shouldn't keep or reintegrate in the future? What do you think? Yeah, that's a great question, Kenny. And um, and two, before I actually dig in that question, I I do want to say I'm I'm excited to receive your book because actually some of the stuff that we'll talk about today is in the worship ministry guidebook too. So it's a great resource. I hope uh, if you haven't uh, gotten your copy yet, I've gotten mine. I'm excited to have it on my desk and uh, appreciate that resource uh, for all worship leaders and all pastors, all churches of all size. So thanks for that, Kenny. So kind of in response to that question, there was a lot of things I think we uh, unintentionally learned during COVID that are are going to influence uh, what we do in worship in the future. One of the questions I think we had to ask during that time that we probably needed to ask even if it wasn't a pandemic, was, am I called to lead music or lead worship? 
And consequently, we had to respond to that because that was a season that required us to make some hard decisions about things we did or didn't do any longer. And so um, the question we must ask, if music is or was the solitary driver of our worship in our church, then it's also going to get the solitary blame when something occurs and we can't do it, or when conflict occurs, then music gets a solitary blame for um, worship conflict because it's the primary tool that we use. Uh, God has called us to lead worship, not just lead music. So music is one of those gifts given to us that we can use, but there are others too. So I would say we need to have more tools on our tool belt. So when hopefully another pandemic, but when any kind of crisis arises that we have to respond to, we need to be ready to respond, not just musically, but in worship beyond that. So there's an idiom that we've probably all heard that may, we may not know the origin of that idiom is one trick pony. In the early days, uh, the circuses would come to town on a train or a wagon, and usually they didn't have a lot of acts. Uh, they just had like a, a small horse or pony that would do tricks. And so it became known as a one trick pony circus. So I think during this season and even beyond, uh, some of us have depended on music alone and it's devolved into worship's one trick pony. And so we've dressed it up and dressed it down and adjusted its speed and direction and style. We've even tried a younger rider for the pony sometimes, but it's still the same trick. So Music, again, is an expression given to us so that we might offer it to God, but it's not the only expression. So that's that's one of the areas that I think we had to land on during that season. We had to depend more on scripture and prayer and even communion from home. But those are foundational, not just supplemental worship elements that we've sometimes have elevated music even above those elements. And I, I believe that, that worship is foundational, but it, it may not be the primary. And I think we need to come back to these things too, so that when we can't do some of those things musically, we can still lead in worship. So we've got to consider those elements as foundational instead of supplemental to our worship service. There were some of those areas that I think we had to land on, Kenny. And, and during that season too, I kept coming back to the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel. And they were in the fiery furnace because they wouldn't bow down and worship the, the idols that the king, Nebuchadnezzar, wanted them to, to worship. And so because of that, they were thrown in the fiery furnace. And they responded to the king when he said that you need to do this. And they said, well, if we're thrown in the, the blazing furnace, uh, the God we serve is able to, and we believe, will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But the key point they make after that is, but even if he doesn't. We will continue worshiping the creator and not the idol you've created. I think we all during that season had to say the same thing. We hope, dream those things will fire back up like they were before. But even if they don't, we are called to worship and to lead others in worship too. And so during the pandemic, but even beyond, we had to ask some hard questions about what we were doing. And then when we were meeting back together, we had to ask some hard questions about what we were going to fire back up. Um, so we had to cancel and suspend a lot of things. And then we had to determine, should we actually start them back up? And all of us were asking the same questions. What We would all love for to get back to what we were doing before. But much like the Israelites, when they crossed that Jordan River, we were in a new place of uncertainty at that point. And so we, like the Israelites, had to realize that we had broken camp here and we need to set up camp over there, but we weren't sure what over there was actually going to look like. Still don't for some of us. 
as we've realized from your question that there are some of those things that we've still not been able to start back. We've tried to on some of them. We've been asking our congregations for years, decades, as worship leaders to be resilient with change. And yet during the season of great change, we were yelling the loudest and lamenting the most for that change. Uh, and we should have been modeling what we've been asking our congregations to do for years. So on the other side of this, as we're trying to figure that out, um, we like the Israelites, when Joshua said to them through God, through Joshua, be strong and courageous. That, that's how we need to face this. So if things are changing too quickly or not quickly enough for us, we need to be strong and courageous. And if after we cross that Jordan to that place of uncertainty where, where a lot of us are right now, we don't recognize that musical territory any longer. Uh, we still need to be strong and courageous. And one of the hardest things I think is that we realized if crossing the Jordan required us to lay all of those previous worship and music ministry sweet spots or elements for us on the table to determine if they had value or were viable on the other side, uh, we still need to be strong and courageous. So um, as we consider what we should or shouldn't or did or didn't, start back uh, beyond the pandemic, we should have been doing ministry audits all along. We should have been asking the questions. You know, ministry audit is is asking that question, is what we are doing uh, missional focused or, or mission focused, or is it preference focused? And I think we realized during that season that some of the things that we love so much were more preference focused than the mission focused because the miss mission was not derailed by the pandemic. Some of our preferences were. And so I think that that ministry audit idea is that we look at every event, group, uh, musical group, choir, team, and we ask the same questions of all those ministries. Does this help us fulfill our mission? If the answer to that is no, we don't immediately kill it or not start it back up. But we ask a follow-up question. Can it help us fulfill our mission if we reimagine it? Uh, new leadership, uh, pour more resources, at, do it at different time, whatever the response might be to that. But if we ask the question, does it help us fulfill our mission? And the answer is no. And then we ask a follow-up question, can it help us fulfill our mission? And the answer to that is also no. Then we have to ask the question, why are we continuing to do that? Because that's taking away from our mission. So I think we need to, even as some of us are still trying to reintroduce some things, to ask those kind of hard questions and audit those ministries um, to try to determine if they are helping us fulfill that mission. I think COVID probably was um, one of the good things that came out of it was it allowed churches to really, like you're talking about, evaluate everything they do and to actually get rid of some things that were needlessly pulling them down because it wasn't needed anymore. It wasn't really part of their mission, but they were just doing it because of tradition or they've continued to do it. I think it has been a good thing. I mean, I think we, if we didn't learn anything from that, we've missed an opportunity. That's right. uh, and and I hope there are some lead pastors uh, that will listen in on the podcast, too, that uh, it's not just uh, the musical things that we had to learn through that, but pastors learned how to synthesize their message and leave a lot of it on the cutting room floor. And so they actually cut out the fluff. And so for them to come back and say, you know, I was I had to preach a 20 minute sermon. I think the congregations took more from that 20-minute sermon than from a 40-minute sermon. So we should ask the question, should we automatically go back to 40 or 45 minutes when 20 did what it needed to do, too? So I think that's beyond just musical audit on that of the ministry, too. It's also every element of the service. That's good. You mentioned personal preferences in that, and that, that kind of leads me to another question I wanted to ask you. 
Yeah, I'm seeing so many churches today that perhaps originally divided their worship by worship preference or age divisions kind of comes together a lot of times. But now we're seeing over and over churches that see this great value of intergenerational worship where all generations are worshiping together in a very biblical model. And I really think that's a sign of a healthy church where people are laying down their personal preferences for the sake of unity of the body. And so that that leads me to this question, David. Most churches seem to long for that intergenerational worship, but they aren't sure that it's possible or how it's possible. What are some suggestions you would give us to help generations come together in worship, in unity? Yeah, Kenny, I know you've written extensively on this too, not only your blog, but in in the um, Worship Ministry Guidebook on this too. So uh, there's some great resources there. So I do believe that's true. I think congregation is divided along age and affinity. I love that you use the language intergenerational and not just multi-generational because the language there does matter. Almost every congregation is multi-generational, meaning they have multiple generations under the same roof. Intergenerational means that they are actually interrelated to each other, too, not just in the same building, meeting and doing things at different times. So we often look back at that in the book of Romans, that famous passage of Paul. When Paul was focusing on the divisions in the church uh, by which we segregate ourselves, in that 12th chapter, that familiar passage we often use in worship uh, leadership is, he says, so brothers and sisters, uh, because of God's mercy, I encourage you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice that's holy and pleasing to God. And that is your appropriate or priestly service or act of worship. I think it was Dale Moody, the old preacher that said that the problem of living sacrifice is it keeps crawling off the altar. And so that's the idea that this, this sacrifice that's required is a universal sacrifice of all. We've often depended on our senior adults to sacrifice the most for everybody else. So that sacrifice that's required there is being able or willing to give something up for the sake of someone else. Yes. So it's offering up or letting go of something. Uh, I'm a baseball fan. In fact, I've got a baseball shrine here in my office with the Chicago Cubs. There's a couple of sacrifices in baseball. And one of those is a bunt. And everybody knows if you're not, even if you're not a baseball fan, you know that the batter's responsibility in a bunt is to sacrifice himself or herself for the sake of the runner or to advance another runner for the good of the team. That batter actually, what we call actually lays down a bunt in order to sacrifice himself for the good of the team. And what a great picture hmm. of intergenerational worship is we're willing to lay down those preferences that we've held on to for so long because we love these people with whom we worship more than we love always getting our own way. So how can our congregations expect to have healthy intergenerational worship when they segregate themselves by age in every other ministry throughout the week? And then we try to come together in that one hour on Sunday around songs, either one generation or the other doesn't particularly like, and we expect that to create intergenerational worship. So what if instead or before we then, uh, all those generations attempted to connect by first learning to love and respect and uh, sacrifice for each other outside of the worship service before actually coming into the worship service, uh, trying to seek that intergenerational worship. That's good. Um, Kenny, you and I have talked about, and I know you use this often, is that intergenerational worship is only possible 
if our common ground when we come together is being willing to defer each other or deference instead of landing on that preference. Mm -hmm. It means I'm willing to set aside my preferences because I'm deferring to you. And it's agreeing that although we may not always love the music of those other generations, we love those people more than we love our choices on our music. So uh, let me use a, a quick illustration. My mom and dad, the last 15 years of my dad's life, died age of 87, but he was about 75. He was out playing golf and got bit by a mosquito, contracted West Nile virus. And so he was in a powered wheelchair for the rest of his life. Mentally, he, he made a recovery, but, but physically, he did not. And so the last 15 years, he had this powered chair and he could transfer himself to his chair and those kind of things in bed. But when he had to get in the car, if they went to church or if they went to the store, if they went to a restaurant, my mom, same age, uh, my dad would wheel up to the car. He would pull himself in. And my mother at that time in her 70s through her 80s would take his powered chair and wheel it around to the back, put it on a lift and strap it in. It didn't matter if it was hot or cold or, or rainy or snowy, whatever the situation was. And she would do that every time they had to go someplace, and then they'd have to do the same thing in reverse when he got out of the car. If you were to ask my mother if it were her preference for the last 15 years of her married life, of their six, three years, if it were her preference to spend that last 15 years transferring that wheelchair uh, from the, the door of the car to the, to the lift on the back every time they had to go anywhere, obviously that's not her preference. But she was willing to sacrifice that preference because she loved my dad more than she loved getting her own way. So that's wow. that understanding of sacrifice. So it's powerful. let me offer a few suggestions here that I think will help us as we kind of think through this. I have six suggestions. I'll, I'll fly through these pretty quickly. This is before we actually gather for intergenerational worship, um, some things we can do as we disperse uh, to try to create and encourage intergenerational relationships. The first one is lead them to pray for and with each other. And praying for and with each other doesn't mean you're praying for the other other side to change their mind. It means you really care about the needs and, and responses of those both generations. Yes. And you're honest and you trust and you're you're vulnerable and you're broken and you pray diligently for them. Second one is to lead them to read scripture to and with each other. Can you imagine the what kind of worship, uh, intergenerational worship presentation would be if a grandparent and grandchild would actually read uh, scripture together in public worship. It'd be amazing of that, that just intergenerational relationship. We had a friend named Kathy who is a senior adult and she has uh, therapy dogs mm -hmm. and her dogs actually go into schools where children that have trouble reading will actually read to the dog where they won't read to a person. So they won't read to a teacher or an adult, but they'll read to the dog. And so what we realized even in church, because Kathy is a believer if she started bringing her dog to Awanas for children to read their scripture or quote their scripture, because they would do it to the dog where they're afraid to do it to an adult. So lead them to read scripture to and with each other. Third one is lead them to share ministry together. Sharing ministry outside of the regular worship service creates this uh, relationship that you can't manufacture. Kenny, you've been on youth and music mission trips used to do those, and we would always take senior adults with us because of those relationships that would be built as they were actually sharing ministry together. We had one guy that's since gone to be with the Lord named Howard. And Howard was a builder and he would take the, those youth. And I remember one time, and maybe you know this word in the South, but um, our boys in Kansas didn't know this and girls didn't know this word cattywampus. And he was talking <laughs> about a door frame that was cattywampus. And the boys were like, cattywampus, what's that? 
It's that became their word for the next three years. And when they got back home, they wanted to sit with Howard and church because they had shared ministry, had a relationship with him. And the fourth one is lead them to play together. Sometimes you just need to have fun and, and enjoy. We had a senior adult lady in our church one time that wanted to develop those relationships with youth and senior adults. Back then, you wouldn't use this language now because it's kind of archaic, but she said, let's just call it geeks and geezers. And they, they wanted to come together and play volleyball with the senior adults and youth. So it was, I was always worried that someone's going to break a hip, but, but they, they loved that. And then we'd eat together and we'd, we'd just play together. A fifth one is then lead them to the table together, physically to the meal table, but also to the communion table. I think sometimes we're trying to create unity when it's already available for us at the communion table. So that's the fifth one. And then six, and I'll end with this, is that lead them finally to sing together. We usually start with the sing together first, and we wonder why there's still conflict. But it's because we don't have a relationship with them outside of the worship service, too. Yeah, I think that's huge because so often as worship planners, leaders, we think about, well, how can we make our songs appealing to the young and the old? And and some of that needs to go into, but what you said is so important. It's that relationship. Mm -hmm. Uh, Something I put down was without love, there's no sacrifice. Without sacrifice, yeah. there'll be no unity. Yeah, that's and good. And so um, yeah. I think what you've said just really illustrates that so well, uh, thinking outside of the actually the worship event, but how do we build those relationships? Yeah, and I mentioned this briefly, and I don't want to miss this. It's equal sacrifice. Yes. Uh, we always assume that the senior adults need to be the one who sacrifices so that we can raise the youth up. But when we do that, we're saying to the youth, we're giving in to your preferences hmm. so that those generations will continue demanding then their way and ride. If we don't say to everyone, this is going to require all of us to sacrifice something. Hmm. That's good. Now, sometimes we those who are more mature in their faith will uh, be called on to sacrifice maybe more, but everyone needs to sacrifice some. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's a requirement. I had a, I had a guy. They used to come by and just drink coffee. And part of that relationship was I would just drink coffee with him and hang out. And he would say to me, you know, I don't really like your music, but I like you. So if you think that's the best thing for our church, then I'm all in. Hmm. I think that kind of gets at something else, too, is not only relationship with young and old, but also as worship leaders, if we have that relationship with all of those people where they trust us and they know we're not taking them to some yeah some strange place, they're much more willing to give in different areas. Yeah. We have one quick illustration too, I think to solidifies that too, is, is sometimes we just have to realize that we have to be careful about how quickly or slowly we take them with us. And so developing those relationships, when I was a high school student, I was in an auto accident. And back then they would teach you defensive driving. Yes. It means you're supposed to be watching other people. Mm-hmm. Most of us as teenagers drove offensively but you're supposed to defensive drive. <laughs> and so I was driving, I was in the right of way, a guy ran a stop sign and, and nailed my front right fender. And when I went up to him to check on him, he said, you are going too fast. I, I was not, he was ticketed. I was not, I was not going too fast. I was going a, a acceptable rate of speed, but I wasn't paying attention enough because what I realized was I wasn't going too fast, but I was going too fast for him. And so with that understanding, I think that's a that's a great illustration. We have to be defensive drivers when we're initiating change and we have to bring them along with us at a speed that you know that they're really comfortable with. Yeah. That's good. 
Well, David, we're looking forward to our discussion with you next time in part two. Well, thank you, Kitty. It's good to be here with you. Our worship and music ministry team wants to equip churches in renewing their corporate worship so that people will encounter the transforming power of Jesus Christ. We want to be on mission together with our churches. Connect with us at ncbaptist.org slash worship and renewingworshipnc.org and get connected with helpful resources for your worship ministry. You can listen to more NC Baptist podcasts just like this one at ncbaptist.org slash podcast. Thank you for tuning in today. Are you a worship leader or volunteer? Don't miss this year's Renewing Worship Expo on September 30th at Salem Baptist Church in Apex, North Carolina. Join us for a one-day multi-track event to equip your team with skills-based training. Speakers include Travis Cottrell, David Manor, Sherry Gould, John Bolin, and more. We can't wait to see you at the 2023 Renewing Worship Expo. Learn more and register at ncbaptist.org slash worship expo. Thank you for joining us today. Because of your generosity to NC Baptist, this podcast, along with other helpful resources, are made available for you. Learn more by visiting ncbaptist.org slash give.